This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. If the unthinkable happened, a nuclear strike against the U.S., would you know how to protect yourself and your family? Let's say a nuclear bomb was to go off in Times Square in the middle of Manhattan. It's a city of 8.2 million. We have a lot of people surviving or surviving with injuries, so a lot of things that people can do and should know about. Then, a former NASA rocket scientist talks about the shortage of females in science and technology and how we can encourage young women to enter these fields. Although I was one of the very few women in rocket science, I had the ability to impact not only the science, but the way that people saw women's contributions to science. Those two stories and more are straight ahead on this week's episode of InfoTrack. Stick around. Our show begins right after this. InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. If the unthinkable were to happen, a nuclear strike against the U.S., would you know how to protect yourself and your family? Joining us to discuss how to stay safe is Erwin Redlener, director of Columbia University's National Center for Disaster Preparedness and author of Americans at Risk, Why We Are Not Prepared for Mega Disasters and What We Can Do Now. So in many cases, we can survive a nuclear attack. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And this is a whole new world as compared to the bad old days of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States when nuclear war was truly existentially catastrophic. In other words, we would look to a possible outcome of really wiping out life as we know it. There were so many nuclear weapons involved that envisioning what would be the aftermath of that was almost impossible. But what we're talking about now are threats that are related to either a terrorist event like a terrorist organization buying, building, or stealing an atomic or nuclear weapon and detonating it in a city or a high concentration of population area. Or a rogue nation like North Korea figuring out finally how to build and launch successfully a nuclear device that could potentially reach Hawaii or the west coast of the United States. So those are single bomb attacks, and they are most definitely survivable. And obviously... If you're in the immediate vicinity, let's say a nuclear bomb was to go off in Times Square in the middle of Manhattan, we'd clearly have 75 or 100,000 immediate fatalities, but it's a city of 8.2 million. So we'll have a lot of people surviving or surviving with injuries, so there's a lot of things that people can do and should know about. So back in the 50s, people were taught to duck and cover, but that wouldn't really apply in this situation you're describing, would it? Well, not really, although, you know, some version of that actually is appropriate. I mean, especially if you're talking about a single detonation, and if you're not within, you know, a half a mile to a mile of the blast, there still might be a lot of radiation and heat, flying glass, you know, physical damage. And under those circumstances, oddly enough, those guidelines, you know, let's say you're a mile and a half away from the blast, could actually be the right thing to do. Because what we're asking people to do is seek shelter someplace that's safe. So let's walk through it. Let's say I'm a mile and a half from the blast point. What's my first sign that something has happened? Do I see a flash of light? A flash of light. And actually, hopefully you're not looking directly at it because getting blinded by that flash of light is highly possible. But let's say you're not blinded and there's an explosion and a flash of light. There's about 20 minutes 
that you have before radioactive fallout begins to descend. So if you're a mile and a half or more away, then that's what your next worry is. If you survive the initial blast, you want to make sure you're not in danger of any of the aftermath, including the fallout. So during that 20-minute period, what people should know is that they need to seek shelter, get as much distance and thickness of either dirt or concrete between them and the outside world. So if you're on the street just out in the open, then the next best thing is get in a car if there's no building to go into. Because a car is better than just out in the open, but a car is not very good protection. So preferably we'd be inside a building. But a wooden building is not as good as a concrete or brick building. And you don't want to be on the top floor if you can help it because the radioactive fallout will be settling on the roof of the structure. And you want to be in the center of the building and not in the uppermost floor. And that's the initial thing that you would do. But secondly is that you need to know that you should be planning on staying there in that shelter for 24 to 72 hours. And then thirdly, you can leave when officials say it's safe and they tell you what direction to leave in. That depends on wind patterns and that sort of thing. So seek shelter, remain in shelter, leave as directed. If we did that in a place like New York City or any large city, thousands and thousands of people would be safe from radiation that could actually kill them. And then how long does it take for all of the radiation to dissipate to the point where it's safe to go outdoors again? Well, the radiation from fallout will dissipate in somewhere between a few days and a week. There's other radiation that leaves contamination for a very, very long time, years, decades. So the closer you are to the actual detonation, the more likelihood there is going to be a very resilient radiation that's going to last for a very long time, which would make some places uninhabitable for a long period of time. But people who live in an area that's going to get less radiation and only fallout radiation, as opposed to the radiation that comes from the blast itself, there's things that you can do. For example, remove the radioactive material from you by removing your clothes and getting a shower. There's no shower available because there's nobody around to do uh, decontamination. Try to get out of your clothes that may be contaminated and fluff out your hair. Just try to get as much of the dust off yourself as possible. We're talking with Erwin Redlener, director of Columbia University's National Center for Disaster Preparedness, talking about the event of a nuclear attack and how to survive that situation. So in terms of preparing, it would be good to have a food store and water on hand and such things because I assume it's very possible your utilities will stop working if there's a nuclear attack. It's possible, and whether they did or they didn't stop working, I think people are advised to have at least three days of food and water, a flashlight with spare batteries, some sort of radio device, and certainly, and this is important too, people on medications for a chronic illness like insulin or heart disease or whatever need to make sure that they have their medication stockpiled sufficiently to get them through a number of days of not having contact or access to a supply chain. Speaking of medication, we sometimes hear about survivalists stocking up on the potassium iodide pills. Good idea? It's completely irrelevant to a nuclear detonation. The only thing that potassium iodide does is to protect against exposure to radioactive iodine. It's called I-131. And radioactive iodine is particularly problematic for children and pregnant women because it blocks radioactive iodine from getting into your thyroid gland, which could eventually cause cancer. But for a nuclear device that we're talking about, potassium iodide has really no place. It doesn't do anything for you. 
What about the uh, instance of an EMP, which I guess is designed to uh, blow up the electrical grid in the country? Same rules apply or, or very different rules in those cases? Well, the electromagnetic pulse or EMP, we have it naturally because you get storms on the sun, solar storms. There's a lot of electromagnetic radiation that emanates from that and eventually it does hit the Earth periodically. But the EMP from a nuclear device exploded in the atmosphere or anywhere could damage the power grid so that we lose power. And those generators and grids would have to be repaired. And without electricity, it's very difficult to imagine how long it would take to actually repair them. But EMP is a danger, and that's why we say that the electrical functionality may disappear from a community that's affected by EMP. Why do you think the government, seemingly, they haven't made much of an effort to educate citizens about these things you're talking about? Yes, this is a tricky issue. In fact, to my surprise, I recently learned that the states of Washington and Oregon, I think both of them have laws prohibiting elected officials or public officials to even talk about what to do in terms of a nuclear detonation. Not a lot to even mention. And the reason those laws were enacted, presumably, is because they were afraid of instilling panic in the communities or in the population because the reaction was expected to be, well, if you're telling me to do this, you must know something I don't know. What is it? And that has been a real barrier to getting a public official to speak out about it. So they just don't. And I think that's, my opinion, unfortunate. Erwin Redlener, director of Columbia University's National Center for Disaster Preparedness. His book is Americans at Risk, Why We Are Not Prepared for Mega Disasters and What We Can Do Now. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Next, a NASA scientist on how to get more women interested in science and technology. That's next. There's more InfoTrack coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 